Hey everyone, before we get started, I'm going to come clean with you. It's been a crazy past few weeks for both of us between moving, vaccinations, and doing tons of overtime for work. So of course, by the time we got around to recording this episode, the audio was basically as good as Joe's attempts to make lobster salad in chapter 11 of Little Women. That is to say, absolutely terrible, and it should be buried deep in our backyards. We've ordered a new microphone, so hopefully going forward, the sound quality will be much better. But until then, enjoy, and pretty please forgive us for what sounds like a herd of buffalo running through Megan's apartment every few minutes, but I swear it's just me shifting around in my chair. Thank you! Welcome back to Costume Drama Rewind. We're your hosts, Megan Jett and Laura Skog. And we are in round two of Joe March Madness. In what promises to be a controversial episode, we are pitting the 1994 classic against the 2017 miniseries. The 1994 version was directed by Gillian Armstrong and stars Winona Ryder as Joe, Susan Sarandon as Marmy, Christian Bale as Laurie, Trini Alvarado as Meg, Claire Danes as Beth, Kirsten Dunst as young Amy, and Samantha Mathis as older Amy. The producer, Amy Beth Pascal, was actually named after two of the March girls because it's Louisa May Alcott's world and we're all just living in it. The 2017 miniseries first aired on the BBC and PBS made it available for American audiences. It was directed by Vanessa Caswell. It stars Maya Hawke as Joe, Emily Watson as Marmee, Jonah Howard King as Laurie, Anne's Elwy as Beth, Catherine Newton as Amy, and Willa Fitzgerald as Meg. So let's jump right into it with Little Faithful, in which we rank the movies according to their relative adherence to Louisa May Alcott's classic novel. I will freely admit that it is hard for me to be objective about these two movies, because the 1994 version was so formative for me, while I only saw the 2017, like, last week. The 1994 version definitely hits a few more highlights of the story than earlier versions. It focuses much more closely on the girls' various struggles against their, quote, bosom enemies. It really returns to being a morality tale in the vein of the original book, but with more emphasis on the feminist themes that are only hinted at in Louisa May Alcott's original story. For more on that, check out episode 20.5, our mini-sode on the true-life story of the woman behind Little Women. What I find interesting about these two productions is that they're kind of the reverse of the 1933 and the 1949 those adaptations were pretty much copying the text verbatim throughout different parts, but they felt pretty stilted. The 94 and the 2017 may not use as much of the text in its script, though the 2017 is much more on top of that than the 1994, but they both do a better job tapping into the emotional core of the story, especially the 1994. You get shots of Beth reading Joe's letters, the rest of the sisters rallying to Amy's defense when she gets punished at school. We see Joe helping Meg with her twins. Through this, we get to see the strength of their bonds that has struck a chord with several generations of readers. Watching the 1994 was especially refreshing because while it hits plenty of the normal scenes that the previous movies did, like the Hummels, Joe selling her hair, etc., we get to see the girls in some of their worst moments, like when Amy burns Joe's manuscript, their mishaps, such as Joe accidentally burning off Meg's hair before a dance. You've ruined me! <laughs> and some more intimate glimpses into their home life, like their Pickwick Papers drag club. Basically, we see them as much more fully formed humans. 
The miniseries, thanks to an extra hour of runtime, is much more faithful to the book than any of the other productions, and it has time to hit more than just the story highlights. We get so many of my favorite scenes from the book, big and small, in the 2017 version. Camp Lawrence! Joe's tame rat, Scrabble! The girls' gardening experiments, with Joe growing sunflowers to feed Aunt Cockletop the hen, and Meg growing a miniature orange tree, which I'm not sure is possible in Massachusetts, but it sounds so appealing that it has fueled my gardening dreams ever since. We get Amy's will when Beth is sick, and John Brooks wounding in the war, and Meg trying and failing to make current jam, and Joe and Beth's trip to the seaside, and Amy and Laurie's courtship, and the lovely epilogue scene at harvest time in the orchard when Joe and Friedrich's school is flourishing and the whole family is together. It feels like we get so much more bang for our buck in that extra hour, and I honestly could have watched several more hours. Something that I like is that Beth also gets more screen time here. We see more about her attempts to conquer her shyness and go play the piano at the Lawrence's over the course of the entire first episode. And I like that in the second episode, we see her asking each sister to go over to the Hummels with her, only to be blown off and then find the Hummel kids sick and dying. I think it helps to make her much more of a real human instead of just being the impossibly good sister who's too pure for this world. You also get a really intense scene of her actually finding the dead Hummel baby and running it through the streets of town to the doctor, which is something that is not strictly canon and I've never seen before, but is really a difficult scene to watch. And it's a lot more effective than, don't come near me! (laughs) Yeah, there's that. (laughs) (laughs) Bringing it back to the language... The miniseries does work in a lot of quotes from the text, but it drops some weirdly modern language too. I wasn't prepared for Joe to say that people usually mellow out at Christmas time. And at that point, I was like, should we continue watching this? (laughs) But I did some research and I was amused by a New York Times review of the 1994 version that grouses about wanting to keep the characters speaking familiarly in our own slurred idiom and saying that the characters don't speak the proper English that was used in the 19th century. It notes Winona Ryder's modern squawk that she has used in all her films. Which is funny, because there are plenty of commentators in the 1860s who also complained about Louisa May Alcott using slang and informal dialect. So basically all reviewers are just Amy. (laughs) It helps to improve your vocabulary. Mm. I am going to have to award eight points to the 1994 and nine points to the 2017 version on this particular dimension, Little Faithful. I know the 2017 has the advantage of extra screen time. I feel like they do so much more with it, with even small micro scenes that give a real feel for who these people are and what their lives are like in ways that are very faithful to the original text. I think for me, I'll do six for 1994 and eight for 2017. So next we move to artistic attempts in which we rank the relative effectiveness of the original spin that each movie tries to give itself. The 1994 version is the first Little Women we've reviewed where the acting feels very natural and naturalistic, the sets feel lived in, the costuming and properties are pretty accurate, and there's a real sense of place about the whole thing. So it did set the standard for everything that will come after, including the 40 versions of Little Women that will surely be made before Laura and I shuffle off this mortal coil. There are some truly beautiful scenes in it that aren't necessarily canon to the book. Meg's wedding, set to the sisters singing For the Beauty of the Earth, Beth's death, which is punctuated by a shot of Hannah's hand strewing rose petals throughout her room and over her things. Those are the two that really grab hold, but are emblematic of just 
the beauty of this film, which holds up 25 years later as a gorgeously shot and edited piece of work, but that also gets some modern updates to the characters. Because it was the 1990s, Susan Sarandon's Marmee was the embodiment of strong female characters. She's got her own hobbies outside of the house. Like skateboarding? I mean, pogs. (laughs) (laughs) Pogs existed in the 90s. They were a thing. So, for example, while the 1933 Marmee is seen doing a volunteer stint at the local U.S. Christian Commission a real religious organization that did do relief work for the Union Army, Susan Sarandon's Marmy continues to do volunteer work with an organization called Hope House throughout the entire movie. Moreover, she can apparently cure scarlet fever better than the local doctors, and she's this endless fount of feminist wisdom. There's even this non-canonical reference to Amy's teacher insulting the idea of educating women so Susan Sarandon can take full umbrage. Amy Boyd Rue says in her Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy book that one of the screenwriters, Robin Swickard, Swickard, anyway, wanted to make overt the things that Alcott had to suggest between the lines and that I tried to write the film as I imagined Alcott would have written it today, freed of the cultural restraints of the time she lived, which Rue says made the conservativeness of that era more overt than Alcott herself ever did. However, I found Susan Sarandon to be kind of cold and condescending as Marmy. You shut your mouth. Sorry. Basically, she's all, I want you to be strong and independent and think for yourself, as long as it's exactly how I would want you to think, to her daughters. Amy boyd also notes that here, Marmy is the all-wise mother figure who preaches to the girls without ever acknowledging her own difficulties or needs. Something that she does really well in other versions is talk to the girls about her own struggles rather than just, you know, preach to them about theirs. Okay, fair. I'll take it. (laughs) I mean, this is the version where it talks about her being a transcendentalist insistent on self-perfection. So I really liked that the 2017 Marmee was seen to be much more human. She has emotions. There are times when her vulnerabilities come out. And just like how she tells Joe that she's angry almost every day of her life, We see her finally snap at Joe when word about their dad being sick comes in, and Joe is this idiot with, where do I go to get basic common over-the-counter medicines? Where would I do that? When it came to Amy, I really liked that the 1994 cast two of them, because half of Amy's lines only sound natural if it's delivered by an actual middle schooler. Like in the miniseries, when Joe confronts Amy over bringing the manuscript, Amy, who is probably about 24, the actress, she just sounds like some sort of Regina George mean girl. Unfortunately, Samantha Mathis' performance in the 1994 as grown-up Amy was just dull instead of being a more mature version of feisty Kirsten Dunst as Amy. She is oddly wooden in that role. But I have some opinions about this. Oh, do it. Obviously, I don't like Amy. <laughs> but the I char- would never have guessed. My friend Gwen, shout out to Gwen. She has a theory that the only people who really like Amy are the people who were Amy as kids. Touche. Take of that which you will. <laughs> but the character was so different in the 2017 version from anything I've seen before. And in the 1994 version, she's a brat. But in a basically conventional youngest child way, it's fine, I am a youngest child, she's basically a sweet kid who just screws up real bad from time to time. In the 2017 version, she is a literal sociopath. With cold, dead eyes. Some of that is because we see not just the aftermath of the great book burning of 1860-whatever, 
But we see Amy going up to the attic, making the decision, collecting the manuscript, and stuffing it in the fire, which feels all the worse because an earlier brief quote from Amy makes it clear that she might be the only person in the family who knows that Joe's literary dreams about writing and publishing a novel are as big as they are. So it feels like so much more of a violation. And while her remorse is real in other film versions, in the 2017 version, she is coldly manipulative about the whole affair. And she's lecturing Joe about Joe's terrible temper and failings as a sister in the moment that she falls through the ice. <laughs> Throughout the 2017 version, she says the quiet part loud a lot. She's just completely careless of anyone's feelings. There's, of course, the famous scene where she basically calls Joe ugly right after Joe has sacrificed for her family. You're one beauty. But she carries through to her being callous about the loss of Aunt March's only child while she's staying with her. She just comes off as incredibly cold and unfeeling all the way through. Unlike Kirsten Dunst and Samantha Mathis's usually genial cluelessness, it takes a lot to appear colder and more unfeeling than a woman who went on to play Atlas Shrugged's Dagny Taggart, but the 2017 Amy manages it. <laughs> Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> I've broken Laura with the force of my opinions. So the 2017 version is also weird because it shuffles some of the events around, especially in the first two episodes. Like think the pickled limes, Meg getting her fancy makeover with the painful shoes at the Moffat Ball, and Joe's first story game published. These all take place after Marmy's gone to Washington to be with their dad. I have no idea why they did this, Unless some of this is to show how the girls make mistakes without their parents being around. The script also shows in other scenes around this point in the story how they struggle on their own, especially when Beth gets scarlet fever and they're just wiped out emotionally trying to play parent to her. You know, I noticed that it tosses the order around so that things that happen kind of flow together rather than occurring as a series of separate episodes in their lives. And I think it actually works in that... It gives the impression that all of this life is happening to the girls at the same time, which is more or less how real life does happen. I don't know about you, but my life does not actually happen in tiny little episodes that are wrapped up at the end of a chapter and punctuated by a sermon from Marmy. So I think it actually, while it's different and non-canonical, I think it works pretty well. And again, because this is a miniseries, we just get that much more time for details. Whether it's showing just how dangerous it was when Amy fell through the ice or mentioning that Mr. March gets a preaching job after the war, you just get the characters' lives filled out that much more. And the scene where Amy falls through the ice is so much more dramatic in the 2017 version than in any other version that I've seen. There's a real sense of peril that isn't necessarily there otherwise, a sense that Amy might not actually make it out of this. Which I know you were just I so sad about. I didn't hope. I didn't hope. <laughs> We also see more of their worlds get fleshed out, especially with the Civil War. You get scenes where Mr. March is in his tent helping a sick soldier. We get action shots of battles and John Brooke getting hurt. We even see patriotic bunting that people have up at their parties to show support for the war effort. You also get flags across Concord in different scenes. And there are even scenes of Marmy taking care of her husband in D.C. Just like Louise May Alcott. So can we talk about the Civil War? Because I have more opinions. <laughs> or I have facts. 
That's it. I have facts. Because the 2017 version makes one really deeply irritating, tiny, tiny, tiny mistake. At one point, the girls are sighing over a news report that the Battle of Balls Bluff has gone badly for the Union, and what will it mean for the war effort? Based on all that has gone before, it is mathematically impossible for this conversation to have happened. (laughs) At the point where they're discussing this, they've already had their first wartime Christmas, so they have to be deep into 1862. Balls Bluff was, in fact, a Union loss, but it occurred in October of 1861. And news did not travel that slowly. And if the screenwriters wanted a random battle to demonstrate that the Union war effort was going poorly, there are several dozen better examples that actually occurred around the time period that we're dealing with. And I know this production is British, but I also know that Wikipedia exists in the UK, and it's just lazy. Call me next time, guys. Ma'am. This is an Arby's. <laughs> what struck me about the miniseries was that when it's good, it's really good. And when it's bad, it's really bad. I utterly hated that modern pseudo-folksy anthropology store overhead music soundtrack. Oh, I really liked it. I also hated the quirky title cards in the intro. Oh, I really liked them. <laughs> These are just totally out of sync with the rest of the production. In contrast, the music for the 1994 version is robust, it crackles with energy, it's perfect. So are the blue title cards with the old-timey engraving prints. In terms of film work, both productions give you plenty of establishing shots of the town and countryside to help build out the characters' worlds visually. I think I am more partial to the 1994, because while most of the film was done in Vancouver, they did do some outside shots in Deerfield, Massachusetts, so it looks more authentically New England. On the other hand, the 2017 version gave me some serious Victorian Christmas man who invented Christmas flashbacks. (laughs) The 1994 built a facade of Orchard House for filming, and the characters even refer to their house as such. I do respect the miniseries, which was filmed largely in Ireland, for not making the house look like a carbon copy of Orchard House, which does give you a different artistic stamp on it. But a lot of the establishing shots of the fields and crops didn't really seem to add that much cohesion to the story. Yeah, the settings for the 2017 version were pretty uneven. On one hand, some of the March's neighborhood feels very urban, and it's clear that the Hummels live on a backstreet slum, which is different than anything we've seen before. But on the other hand, it sometimes looks like they live in the middle of nowhere, and what we usually understand is Amy's somewhat fancy urban school for girls in this production would actually look more at home in Little House on the Prairie. So how are we scoring artistic attempts? I'm going to have to give eight points to the 1994 version and seven points to the 2017 version. The 2017 does some interesting things, but the 1994, while it isn't wildly creative, is really still the gold standard for interpreting this story. I'm going to do eight for both. They make different artistic decisions, which have strengths and weaknesses, but I think they do solid work, albeit in different ways. So now we come to Joe's journal, in which we rank our respective Joes. This, for me, was the hardest part of the judging. For our generation, Winona Ryder is THE Joe, kind of like Katherine Hepburn was for a long time. I like that with her portrayal of Joe, they're basically saying that you don't have to be a total jock to be a tomboy. She's not prissy like Amy, she's not into fashion or dancing like Meg, but she's not as physical as previous Joes. Winona is charming, upbeat, she shows emotional complexity, and I like how she's shown in the actual act of writing throughout the movie and developing her craft, 
And she's also the storyteller and narrator of her family's tale. Until that little creep Amy burns it up. (laughs) You know, I have the same struggle. I know that everyone who submitted a bracket, thank you to Gwen, Carrie, Katie, and Local Lou of the Local Lou podcast, picked Ryder to win it all. And I came in expecting that, fully anticipating that. Winona Ryder is Joe, and she's a wonderful aspirational character in spite of, or perhaps because of all her flaws, and she was my first hero on film. Maya Hawk is a lot harder to like as Joe at first. Whereas Ryder's Joe is always really, really funny, even when she's grumpy and grumbling, Maya Hawk's Joe is missing a lot of the humor. She's mostly just a crank. But I think that can be really faithful to Joe, too. It's a different side of her, but that doesn't mean that it isn't canon and isn't important. And it makes the contrast so much stronger when you do see the depth of her feeling for her sisters. When she cuts her hands to ribbons, saving Amy's unworthy carcass. (laughs) Or when she tells a dying Beth exactly what she has meant to her. The sort of rough edges that she presents to the world make her softness for her sisters all the more meaningful. I definitely thought Maya Hawk brought out some interesting nuances. I think she does a really good job of showing moody, angry, sullen Joe, the Joe who gets admonished to curb her temper all the time. And with her tan and freckles, she comes across as more earthy than the very fair, very delicate, very beautiful Winona. And for me, she does a more convincing job of slumping, slouching, being physically awkward. We even see her trying to figure out her corset while she's living on her own in New York. Where Winona is much more graceful, more pixie-like, which some of the costuming emphasizes. She's just perfect, basically. Possibly too perfect. Yeah. I also thought it was interesting that the miniseries explores Joe being the boy of the family more. They show her doing the more physical chores, like chopping wood. She talks about how they'd face their mom leaving for DC better if they were men. She also cops to identify more with boys than girls. This is all shades of Louisa May Alcott. So now we come to scoring Joe's journal. I have thought and argued with myself and walked the floor like Sarandon's mommy administering her witch doctor medicine. (laughs) And I have to give a narrow edge to Maya Hawke's Joe because she made me see the character in some new ways for a character that I knew so well, but that really give her more depth. So I am, after much consideration, giving Riders Joe a 9 and Hawks a 9.5. Yeah, this one was really tough. For similar reasons, I'm doing 8 for Winona and 9 for Maya. You're always a tougher grader than I am. So that makes my final scores in a surprise upset for this round of Joe March Madness. 25 points for the 1994 version starring Winona Ryder, and 25 and a half points, a narrow but undeniable victory, for the 2017 version starring Maya Hawk. God, please don't hurt me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing 22 points for 1994, and for 2017, 25. We're in so much trouble. I know. So, actor count! We've reached critical mass there. Winona's back on the podcast after having last appeared as Abigail Williams in The Crucible. And she's gonna curse us. But she was really enchanting there, too. Christian Bale was last on the podcast as Jack Kelly in Newsies. Kirsten Dunst did the voice of young Anastasia. 
Donald Logue, who plays Jacob Meyer, one of the students that Joe spars with, he played Dan Scott way back in The Patriot, the guy who became best friends with Occam the Enslaved Man. Dale Rustegni, who plays a background character here, was also in The Crucible in the role that IMDb billed as Screaming Villager. Great name for a band. I am also legally obligated to mention here, and as often as possible, that since Christian Bale had filmed The Newsies right before this film, according to an interview with Trini Alvarado, he taught all of the girls all of the dances from The Newsies in between scenes of Little Women, which is just a great visual. They should have included it. I know. <laughs> For the 2017 miniseries, Emily Watson, who played Marmee, was Elsie the Maid back in Gosford Park. Michael Gambin, who was Mr. Lawrence, was also in Gosford and in Amazing Grace. Angela Lansbury voiced the Dowager Empress in Anastasia. Amelia Crowley, who played Mrs. Kirk, was Mrs. Grimsby in The Man Who Invented Christmas. Adrian Scarborough, who played Mr. Davis here, was last on the podcast for both 1917 and Gosford Park. John Colleary, one of the Army's stretcher bearers, played Constable Copperfield in The Man Who Invented Christmas. And Mark Quigley, one of the background characters here, was also an extra in The Man Who Invented Christmas. So, I guess I'll be entering the Witness Protection Program to hide from angry Winona Ryder fans. Join us next time for Costume Drama Rewind as I broadcast from an undisclosed location under an assumed name <laughs> and as we review the final two contenders for Joe March Madness, the 2018 version starring Sarah Davenport and the 2019 version starring Saoirse Ronan. This is Costume Drama Rewind. Thanks for listening. Thank you.